Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Gina Nutt. Her writing has appeared in Cosmonauts Avenue, Joyland, Ninth Letter, and other publications. Her new book is Night Rooms, which is published by our friends at $2 Radio. Gina, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And Gina, my first question for you is, how have you been this last year? How has life been treating you under the cloud of COVID-19? Yeah, that's. Uh, it's been an interesting time. I'd been working from home, doing some freelance work for an independent press, Black Lawrence Press. Um, so I've continued to do that. Um, but it's been really different. Um, someone who misses the full feeling of a room going to hear readings, mm. because for me, that's something that's really creatively energizing. Mm. Um, I just love being around people who care about writing and care about authors. So that's something I've missed. Um, but I've been holding up all right, you know, navigating the virtual tour. I'm starting to feel like I'm actually getting to see people and connect with more folks this way. So this has been kind of a, a beacon um, as we start to hopefully see the light at the end of the tunnel, right? You know, it's yeah. a weird time. Yeah, I hope I've read so. a lot of books. <laughs> oh, yeah, good, good, good for you. Yeah, I'm finding that like a lot of people who normally read a lot of books are finding it hard to read uh, in this environment for things to hold their attention, which all of that's totally understandable. Um, well, let's jump into your fantastic book, Night Rooms. It is described as refracting life through the lens of horror films. Uh, my question, Gina, is what led you to use horror films as a framing device for your essays? So I had seen the movie It Follows and I'd seen other horror films, but for some reason that one really, it just pulled me in. It stuck with me. It was one that a year after seeing it, it was still, still feeling really resonant and still feeling like something that meant something to me. Mm. Um, and about the time I wrote the first essay, I was, I was really struggling with writing. My father-in-law had passed away. And so I kind of leaned into uh, a meditation on death and anxiety through It Follows. It just kind of happened naturally. Mm. And when I was feeling like, oh, this essay is done, I'll start to maybe think about sending, sending it out a year later. I was still writing about additional horror films and using those as kind of microscopes, ways I could look at my life. And that's when I kind of was like, okay, I can, I can live in this book for a while. I, I'm excited about it. And that, that to me is kind of when I know I want to spend time and at least keep writing something. At that point, it's always hard to know if it's going to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. But to me, half, you know, most of the fun is just getting to write something and, and live in a book for a, a couple of years and be with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Gina. Um, you start this book in this first essay by writing about death. There is a story about a dead mouse that I'm hoping you can share with our listeners now. 
Did you want me to read the passage? If you would like to read it, you can, or you can just tell us whatever. Oh, sure. I'll just tell you because it's much better when I, well, I mean, it's probably, it's pruned in the book, but so the dead mouse story is one of those weird pieces of family lore that I'd always been told that for whatever reason, one day I just brought my mother a dead mouse Mm -hmm. and it was like, it's sleeping mom check it out and she was like that's that's not sleeping um it was real sad um but it's strange because i don't remember like carrying the mouse into her or showing it to her it's kind of one of those things that like she's recounted for me over the years just kind of like that i was always picking up animals and loving them and um that regardless of that um that was kind of one of the earliest you know, I guess earliest encounters with death, even though I didn't remember the mouse. Um, All I have is this kind of family relayed story, Um, but that's so resonant. It's this kind of idea of like, in the book I call, I say it's like, you know, hearing someone talk about a movie that I can't remember seeing, Mm -hmm. um, which is a very frustrating thing because that feels like such a, an important moment to remember. But um, I guess I was a morbid kid (laughs) <laughs> or or too innocent to know better <laughs> right yeah and you know what do you think this experience teaches us about how one learns about death and beyond that what do you think the nature of learning about and writing about this experience teaches us about the nature of memory hmm. well i think when i think of that experience it's kind of that it's that because I didn't know it was dead, I was like, it's just sleeping, is that it doesn't have to be this morbid, dark, those are adjectives we used to talk about death. And yes, it's serious and it's sad, but it's also something that it doesn't have to be behind a closed door or a curtain. And I think for me in writing this book, one thing I came to terms with was how, not in the creepy, like riding a roller coaster way, but how death deserves respect and how we do need to think about it and consider it and that it is part of life. Um, And I think there's something very life affirming about that, leaning into um, the reality that death happens and we all have to experience it. And that's certainly something I think a lot of us um, have reckoned with in the last year and we're we're figuring it out all those, you know, the many kinds of deaths within our lives that we may or may not have experienced in the last year. So I do think it's, it's worth talking about and and reflecting on, even if we don't necessarily come up with a big epiphany or a big answer, it's worth checking in with ourselves and being like, where am I at on this? And how do, how do I respond to death in my life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that answer, Chino. Switching gears for a moment, you mentioned the film Titanic in this section of the book, and it comes up a couple of times. Uh, In this first mention, you specifically write about repeated viewings of Titanic. Uh, This is a two-part question. One, why was Titanic so important to you and to this time period? And two, how much of these repetitive viewings of Titanic by you and others were a result of the film's marketing do you think and what i mean by this is the marketing of the film was always about how it was going to break the all-time box office record which is something that requires repetitive viewings i think 
<laughs> it's so funny because I was a, a girl of the 90s and I think I think a lot of reasons you know why I came to the movie um, and why a lot of my friends came to the movie was for Leo um, and we really loved that love story and I think that's where a lot of our re repeated watching came from especially at sleepovers for whatever reason we would just fall asleep with the first tape playing and at one point my first tape got stuck in a, a VCR <laughs> mm -hmm. and when I think about that you know this idea of the marketing and um, that it was going to, you know, break, it was going to break all sorts of records. Um, I like to think that um, young women had a lot to do with that, maybe. Um, but I think, too, that there was also, there was also kind of a historical aspect to it, because I, I remember friends and I writing, like, Titanic fan fiction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was so bad. <laughs> um or writing like Titanic historical fiction, that was when it got really, you know, we were trying to, I guess, maybe fit some school assignment or something. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, you know, now I, I could watch it and probably appreciate the, the, the film, like the colossal scope of it as a film. Um, mm -hmm. And at the time, I think I was just mystified by how many times did I see it in theaters for? Four times I saw Titanic in theaters. Um, but that was such an experience. I think too, like, had a lot to do with like the mall culture and going to the movies. And, and that, that felt like a big part of uh, my tween and teenhood was going to the mall. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I can see that um, two VHS box set in my mind of that movie. I wonder how many of our listeners know about um, VHS cassettes and VCRs at this juncture of time. That would be an interesting study. Um, Gina, is is Titanic a horror film? Oh my gosh! You know, now it, it is. It's about a pretty horrible tragedy, is it not? Um, you know, it's marketed as this. It was a love story. It was. A, the greatest love story of all time. And um, I'm sure there were probably you know, class implications in there as well. Um, you know, Rose falls in love with Jack, who's poor. Um, but it's a bit of a horror movie when we think about, you know, there's a scene where, here's a spoiler, when the ship is sinking and it's going into, it's turned up on it on one end and some, the, Passengers have climbed up to the railing. They've climbed up to the highest point and someone falls off the edge. And I remember like the sound of him hitting a propeller. And I was like, that's, that's horrifying. Like it, it, it could be a horror movie. I think we could set some different music to it though. <laughs> to <laughs> right. Amplify that effect. Right. Yeah. That would be an interesting uh, recut of that film for sure. Oh, um, I bet someone's done that on YouTube. <laughs> Maybe, maybe I'm going to look for that later. Well, thank you so much, Gina. Listeners, we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Gina Nutt. 
The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Gina Nutt, author of Night Rooms, which is published by our friends at $2 Radio. Gina, let's talk about Jaws. Uh, how is Jaws different than Sharknado? And what happened to the public perception of sharks in the decades between these films that changed sharks from monsters to punchlines? Mm. I almost wonder if it has something to do with Shark Week. Mm. <laughs> I'm not a cultural historian, but I would get that would be my guess is that it's kind of we've almost become desensitized to sharks. We've become more familiar. And I almost wonder sometimes if something like Sharknado or mm. some of the other there was a Blake Lively film with a shark, The Shallows. That's what that one was called. Mm. Um, some of these shark films, I wonder if they're almost intended to be horror comedy or you know, definitely Sharknado, mm-hmm. uh, towing that line because Jaws is so, it's almost irreplaceable. You couldn't do a redo. You couldn't do a redo that. It would be really hard to redo that. Kind mm-hmm. of like Suspiria had to be something entirely different to even mm-hmm. be a, re- a remake uh, when that was mm-hmm. redone in 2018. Yeah, absolutely. Um I love the soundtrack to that remake, by the way. It was by Tom York from Radiohead. Yeah, I have that one. It's it's amazing. And, you know, it's it's interesting. A couple of years ago, Goblin, mm-hmm. uh, who did the soundtrack for the first, they were doing a tour. Mm-hmm. And they were playing the soundtrack while the movie played in the background. Oh, that's it would cool. be really cool to see Tom York do the the current the 2018 soundtrack while the new the remake plays that would be something to see yeah i would pay for that for sure um thank you gina there's a section in this book about beauty pageants is this true were you in beauty pageants yes (laughs) i was in uh beauty pageants as a child Mm -hmm. i was in so they were hosted at shopping malls. So they weren't the typical, like now when I say that, I have to really be careful because I think people immediately go to, they were the toddlers and tiaras variety, but they were hosted at shopping malls. So in a way they were really, really kind of creepy and strange, but also of any entertainment variety at a shopping mall, kind of cheesy in a sense, mm-hmm. but pageants by nature, I think are cheesy. Um, and then years later, I competed in a pageant for tattooed women, mm-hmm. um, which purported to be this kind of subversive alt model type thing. And in the end, it's still playing to those ideas of beauty, still playing to those ideas of, um, you know, particular body types. So mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting that even in trying to subvert beauty standards, it's still 
participating in that culture. Yeah, and how are your experiences in beauty pageants framed by horror films? Well, <laughs> I, uh, I allude to uh, whatever happened to baby Jane, mm. uh, which is, to me, it's like a study in the grotesque. And everyone in that film, like there's just this sense in that throughout that whole film of, like whenever I see Betty Davis saying, I'm just like, oh, this is really creepy and off-putting. Um, so I do frame them in terms of the grotesque and these kind of caricatures of women um, for the later pageants and caricatures of little girls for the for the earlier ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, to stick with this thread for one more question, the scene uh, where you were slamming a car door stating that you did not win because you are ugly, now, this seems incredibly destructive to me, but it seems like it may be a common experience of beauty pageant contestants, um, which seems weird. It would be like being a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, losing and stating that you suck at writing or something like that, uh, <laughs> but I get it. Um, isn't this sort of a destructive thing for a child to be put through? Yeah, so that was actually um, after that experience, the car door slamming, that was the last pageant my mom signed me up for. Mm. She was basically like, this is not okay. We're not going to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Because it was one of those things where I liked dressing up. I liked getting my hair done and my makeup done. But I think she saw when I was, when it went from being like, oh, I'm just, dressing up and walking on a stage and answering questions. I think she was like, this is really deep and weird. Mm -hmm. And I think too, it was one of those things where we didn't have a ton of money. So we started to realize, I think as we were doing the pageants that, you know, the girls who won, they had these shiny dresses, they, you know, could pay for classes. Um, at one point we borrowed a dress uh, from a contestant who won like everything her mom like lent the dress to us for for a pageant um mm -hmm. but it, it it can be destructive I imagine too probably for like certainly for the contestants but also I think for parents trying mm -hmm. to who think like oh I'm just signing my kid up for some you know this silly mall pageant and then they realize like how quickly that cost can accumulate and so it's it's a very strange it's a very strange niche. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was good that your mom had that realization, though. I think that that's probably unusual. Um, so, so you're very lucky. Yeah. Yeah. No, she was like, no more. She's like, you can keep doing your ballet, but this, no. Like, yeah. Good. Um, well, let's switch threads again, Gina. You speak a lot about courses in this book, poetry courses, but more unusually, home buyers courses, babysitting <laughs> courses. Are these real things that you experienced? Yeah. <laughs> so at some point in my teenhood, I took a babysitting class and I can't even remember how long it met for. It must've been like a couple Saturdays or something like that. And I think it was through a local like YMCA mm -hmm. and we went and everyone, everyone got a binder and we learned how to take care of a baby, a child, uh, because I think I was maybe at an age where I was like, maybe I'll start babysitting for money. Um, I didn't do that until like I had graduated from high school. I did it. I graduated early and I actually nannied for 
uh, the semester off. Um, but so it was kind of interesting to have that time between. And the home buyers course is something I did here in Ithaca. Mm -hmm. And it was basically with the intention of, you know, this learning about how to buy a house because the process is very daunting. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm glad we took that course because mm -hmm. it kind of prepared me for when the time came years later. Um, at the time when we took the class, uh, my husband and I signed up thinking, oh, we'll buy a house. And when we learned like how much it was, we were like, this is going to take us a really long time. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think we uh, were really excited about the possibility of having, you know, writer's offices, <laughs> uh. places to store books. But it's very odd. Um because those courses kind of focus on, at least the one I took, it was kind of assumed, I think, that everyone in the class had money to, to come in and talk about, oh, we'll just start saving. And that, I found that very frustrating because at the time I had finished grad school and I was working at a food, a grocery co-op. So, nice. um, and I was writing. So I was just kind of like, I felt so silly, like, how dare I dream of a house? I'm a poet, <laughs> you know, that's what I was writing mostly at the time. Mm -hmm. But now I'm like, I'm glad, I'm glad I was there. Someone, a poet should always be in the home buyer's course <laughs> to mm -hmm. remind everyone. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wish I had taken a home buyer's course. I'll tell you that. Um, did you, have you been through the, did you go through the process? <laughs> I have, I have bought a house and, you know, I also, I had no money when I bought a house, but the market was so low here in North Carolina at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, but I definitely feel like there, it could have been a valuable experience. <laughs> um, yeah. I moved here from San Francisco where it was just an entirely rental based market, you know. <laughs> and it's really expensive there. Right? Yeah unforgivably expensive yeah yeah different worlds for sure well um gina something in this part of your book that i read about and then immediately went to check out was uh the website diedinhouse.com i had no idea that this was a thing that existed um can you tell us about this site how you found out about it and the different ways uh that different um states here in in our country mandate that a death in a home be dealt with or not dealt with in some cases yeah so i i think i just kind of had been searching on the internet like who died in my house mm -hmm. and that's how i found diedinhouse.com was i was wondering i was like did anyone ever die in my house because those are the kinds of things i wonder about um I think that's pretty normal, though, if you buy a house that's not brand new to mm. wonder if it's older. And so diedinhouse.com will give a report that says if you're if there was a death in your house, if your home has ever been a meth lab. That was another really interesting one to me, because I think that's still relatively new, uh, whether or not people are required to disclose that. Um and so this is, that's the second part of your question is uh, this idea of disclosure laws. So different states have different rules about what you have to say about a house. So um, asbestos, lead paint, uh, pests, like if there are problems with termites or all those things. So it's different for every state, which is kind of horrifying, especially hearing you say that you moved from California to North mm -hmm. Carolina because 
how how would you know if you don't uh, if you don't live in a state already what's mm. required and how would you know if you'd never heard before oh disclosure laws vary um, mm. but it, amid the house research one of my favorite details I found was that um, one way to you know say there's a haunting or that there was a death in the house is the phrase emotional defects mm -hmm. and i thought that i was like that's so poetic you know it's like finding out that conscious sedation is called twilight anesthesia mm -hmm. you know it's one of those things it's just so perfect emotional defects which mm -hmm. to me i don't know it kind of humanizes the home buying process which feels really just expensive and about money but it also it's like these are history places and I don't know, it makes it really creepy. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, listeners go check that website out. If you're so inclined, I did not pay um, whatever the fee was either to learn things, but yeah, the meth lab thing is interesting. This is a thing that I never thought about, but then, you know, thinking back on, on the news, they're like, yep, the house exploded. There was a meth lab in it or, um, uh, my wife went to Ball State University, which is in this tiny town, Muncie, Indiana, and in the town's Chamber of Commerce, they advertise um, that one of Muncie's big tourism draws is the Walmart that's there. And then um, <laughs> we learned that this Walmart later uh, exploded because they were they had a meth lab in their film development studio or whatever. And, oh my gosh. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's the kind of tribute scene you want to know, especially I think because the chemicals can the half-life of some of the chemicals can affect health. So it's yeah. probably important to know that. Right. Yeah, it's a crazy world. Well, Gina finally um and listeners there are so many fascinating things going on in these essays we couldn't possibly cover them all in this podcast but we do have signed copies of this book available at quail ridge books uh you very much need to pick it up in person or order it online but gina finally you write any thought i share feels like an idea i must live up to forever and I think this is an interesting thought for an artist to have, for a writer to have, um, more so now in the age of Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. Um, can you unpack this thought for us? Sure. So I wrote that, that idea is in an essay about motherhood and deciding whether or not to have children. And I think that that came a lot later that essay, I'd been kicking it around for at least a year before I got to that place. And I think I threw up my hands in the air, frustrated, like anything I say, I have to live up to it forever. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's really hard. Um, but kind of widening the gaze and thinking beyond my experiences thinking about motherhood. I think that every artist, every person, is, is allowed to change their mind, especially when they receive new information or as our lives change. And I think that that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing I, I hope these essays can do is show that our brains are malleable and humans, as humans, we are adaptable and we can change. Um, and we can adapt in the face of grief, we can adapt in the face of loss. Um, whether that's of a loved one or a sense of self or a sense of dignity. And so I think for me, like, yeah, it's about motherhood in that context, but I, I think that it, it can also be broadened 
I hope it can be broadened. Um, Cause I think that we do change as, as artists and as people. Yeah, I definitely think it can be broadened. And I brought up social media because of all of, you know, you see this every day where someone digs up someone's social media history, um, usually for negative reasons. And like, I oh, remember when you said this thing, like shame on you. Um, yeah, it's just such a, um, a daunting thing to think that anything you say can be held against you for the rest of your life. <laughs> um. I know. I know. I only have, I'm, I'm down to just Instagram and there are lots of cats, mm. pic, cat pictures. So mm. hopefully the captions are okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Gina. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me about this wonderful book. Listeners, I have been speaking with Gina Nutt, author of Night Rooms, which is published by our friends at $2 Radio. Gina, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jason. Have a wonderful day. Once again, I would like to thank Gina Nutt for joining me. Copies of Night Rooms can be ordered at www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping for members of Readers Club Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN. That's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.